you're ready to go. All right. Excellent. Well, we are going to be in Matthew chapter six, as I mentioned uh, last week. And we're doing a little part of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and what I really want to highlight this is you'll see we go through a couple of reasons. I think that this passage is going to help us think a little bit more about Clarence Jordan, uh, some of his key values that he's pulling out from Scripture. And that's one of the, one of the things I really want us to do with the Cotton Patch Gospel. And then hopefully that you'll continue to do, regardless of what translation of the Bible that you're reading, is is to let these words come back alive. Like, like I said the first week, I think a lot of times those of us who have grown up in the church and have been in church for decades, we, we've almost too familiar with the stories. And we can explain away some of the radical teachings that Jesus has given us. Uh, there was a, many of you probably know of the activist Shane Claiborne. Uh, he's a kind of a protege of Tony Campolo. Uh, and several years ago, he was preaching at a conference and was going to be doing two sermons. And so for the first sermon, uh, he got up and announced, you all are about to hear the greatest sermon ever preached, which is a pretty bold declaration to announce right before you start preaching. He then opened up the Sermon on the Mount and read all the way through with no commentary. <laughs> Shut his Bible and said, it's the greatest sermon ever preached. And the problem is we act like he was just joking and then sat down. And so that's kind of what I want us to think about as we're reading just this small passage from the Sermon on the Mount today is, is what if we actually took these words seriously, particularly if you think of some of the older Bibles that used to have kind of the red letter edition. You know, what if we took those red letters seriously? How would that change our, our faith personally and as a community? So I'm going to read a little bit there in Matthew 6. And just so that we make sure we have time, I'm going to just hit a couple little sections. I'm going to do verses 19 to 21. And then I'm going to jump down to 31 to 33. So just to give you a little taste of what's happening in there. And then we're going to unpack a couple of the translation differences that Clarence makes. And then I want to talk about some of the big picture concepts here. So Matthew 6, starting verse 19. Put no value on earthly things, which worms and rust consume, and which thieves break into and steal. Rather, y'all, set your hearts on spiritual values, which neither worms nor rust consume, and which thieves do not break into and steal. For your values and your character are wrapped up together. And then jumping down to verse 31. So cut out your anxious talk about what are we going to eat and what are we going to drink, and what are we going to wear? For the people of the world go tearing after all these things. Listen, your spiritual father is quite aware that you have got to have all such stuff. Then set your heart on the God movement and its kind of life. And all of these things will come as a matter of course. So first I want to unpack just a couple of the interesting language choices there. Uh, you probably caught the y'all, which I think is, you know, of course, that fits with Jordan being a Georgian uh, Southern speak there. But actually, it's, it's actually a really good translation anyways, because the problem with English is that we use the word you both as a singular and a plural. Right. So I could be I could talk to one of you, uh, Stephen. I looked up at the screen. You're the first one I, name I saw. Or I could say you and it could be just Stephen. Or I could say to all of you, you. So now in my next sentence, if I say you, does Stephen know if I'm talking to him specifically or to all of you together? This is a problem we have in the English Bible is that in the Hebrew in the Old Testament and the Greek in the New Testament, they're using different words for you singular and you plural and then reread it all just as you. And it, in an American context, particularly our individualistic society, we tend to you read all of these yous as you singular, as opposed to you plural. And that can create some really significant problems as we start to unpack what's happening there. So, so first of all, I think that's important that there is a, what y'all is actually really helpful because 
as you're reading through the cotton patch, it helps you notice when it's you singular and when it's you plural. There's actually some others more recently that have done uh, things. There was someone who created a, a computer programmer who created a, uh, an app that would change BibleGateway.com so that when you're reading the Bible there, if you were, had this extension on your computer, it would change you to y'all, the you plurals, just the you plurals. And so that way it would kind of help you think about, you know, what, what's happening in certain cases when it's actually plural and what's happening in other cases when we're, so that way we know when we're actually reading a singular version of you or when we might be reading uh, the, the more plural version. And again, we, we, we tend to, I think in our American context to, to, to err on the side of reading it as singular instead of reading it on the side of plural. Let me give you just a couple of examples of this in other passages that I think uh, are really important. Um, actually, uh, I'm pulling this up. We had this in the January 2020 issue of Word and Way. Uh, had a had an issue uh, talking about had the the cover was talking about um, praying, corporate prayer, and so forth. And then we had a little sidebar in there about the Y'all Bible uh, that I was talking about. There are 4,720 verses in the Bible, 2,698 in the Old Testament, and 2,022 in the New Testament where you would need a y'all or you plural instead of you singular. So over 4,700 yous in the Bible are actually a plural you as opposed to a singular you. Let me give you a few of these examples. And I think that when you start to start to hear them, you realize, wow, the Bible is a whole lot more collectivistic than we tend to read them. But I'm going to pick some really common ones. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for y'all, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give y'all a future and a hope. And I'm just reading you the, you, the NIV with the y'all added in. This is not from the cotton patch. Um, another one from the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.14. Y'all are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So it's not you individually. You are individually not the light of the world. We together are the light of the world. Uh, Romans 12.1, therefore I urge y'all by the mercies of God to present y'all's bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is y'all's spiritual service of worship. Again, so this is a collective uh, command here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16, do y'all know, do y'all not know that y'all are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in y'all? I mean, I've heard a lot of these verses used in very individualistic senses uh, before. Ephesians 6.11, put on the full armor of God so that y'all will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So you're not a lone soldier here in this metaphor, right? You're part of the army here. Uh, one more, Philippians 2.12-13. to 13. So then, my beloved, just as y'all have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work on y'all's salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in y'all, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So that's one thing I think is really important that we're catching uh, in the Cotton Passion. Like I said, there's some other efforts more modern of the last decade or so to help us read the Bible and see when the writers are talking to us as a community, as opposed to talking to us individualistically. And I think that, that starts to change the way we view what does it mean to, to live out our faith? This is not something we can do individually, that it is something that must be done in community. So that's one thing I wanted to highlight uh, there in the translation that he's doing. Uh, there's another one that's, it's subtle at the beginning, but I think it's interesting to start thinking about. It says, put, instead of like the NIV says, do not store up. And what Jordan has is put no value. Put no value on earthly things, which worms and rust consume, as opposed to this idea of not storing up. Because, and the reason why I like that is, you know, you could be somebody who's so poor that you can't store it up, but you still are putting a lot of value on it. And that's that's really what Jesus is getting to here. It's not it's not merely the act of of hoarding. It's it's the desire to hoard. It's the desire to gain this wealth. Uh, and I think that's really important to think about what's happening here. 
And then one more thing, and then we're going to unpack particularly that concept of, of not hoarding, is instead of the kingdom of God there in the last verse, Jordan has set your heart on the God movement. This is, this is a very common metaphor that Jordan uses throughout, particularly his translation of Matthew. Matthew has a lot of kingdom language, and Jordan changes it to the God movement. Uh, and, and I think that this is helpful for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, very much he's writing in his milieu. He's writing in the 60s, right? It's a movement 60s, a movement decade, right? There's a time where it's all about the movements. Uh, and so I think he's borrowing from that language of this idea of the movements that he's seeing around him at very social, cultural, political level. But I also think it's helpful because we're not really very good at understanding the whole kingdom metaphor anyways. We don't really know what it's like to submit to a king or a lord, uh, the totality of that, because we, we've never been in a kingdom, uh, an earthly kingdom. We, you know, we have a different system. We can, we can criticize our governor or mayor or president and not worry about being punished or killed. Uh, we can vote them out of office, right? I mean, you know, we can do a lot of things that you cannot do in a kingdom. Uh, and I'm not going to go real deep into this. For those of you who were in the Bible study we did last fall about politics in the Bible, we talked quite a bit about this idea of, of kings and trying to understand what does it mean to live in a kingdom. And, and we, we're so bad at understanding what it means to be in a kingdom that we like to go through the Old Testament and decide which kings are good kings and which kings are bad kings. And you don't get to do that in a kingdom, right? That's actually, that's actually an offense uh, against the monarchy. There's an official term uh, for it, but uh, they would actually critic, they would actually kill people for that. If you call any king bad, it's considered an assault on the entire monarchy, the entire line. Right? And so in a kingdom, you don't get to pick which kings you like and which kings you don't like. We get to pick which presidents we like and which ones we don't like. But we don't get to do that with a king. And so with a, with a monarchy, you, you accept them all or you reject them all. There is no such thing as a good, thing, good king or a bad king. There's just, they're just king. They're king because they're king. They're in charge because they're king, not because they're good. And that's really different. And so I think, I think this, this metaphor of kingdom is one that we really struggle with. And so Jordan's helping us to try to break out of that. He uses the God movement. I think that that was a, a very good uh, metaphor for the 60s. I'm not sure that it fits as well today. I don't know what a good metaphor would be for today. But I do think that this idea of thinking about what does it mean when we're following in this community? What, what are we going to call ourselves in this community? So I want to talk particularly about this idea of of valuing wealth and the danger that has. That's a key part of the Sermon on the Mount, particularly this, this section uh, that we have here. And so we should probably talk a little bit about Koinia, the Koinia farm that, that Jordan and his wife and uh, another couple founded in, in 1942, Southwest Georgia. And it, uh, it's radical on a lot of things. Uh, interestingly, the first criticism of them was not on race. Race became the thing that nearly got them killed in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and even though they started off with being an interracial Christian community, uh, the issue in 1942 that is most uh, dangerous to their neighbors isn't the idea that they're white and black together. It's that they might be communist. That's, that's actually the, the big concern in the 40s. And they might be communists because they decided to live together and share everything together. Now, they said they were just being Acts 2 uh, Christians, but to people in 1940, this sure sounded a whole lot like the very thing that we were fighting around the world. And so the earliest criticism of them is that they're communists. Here's, here's what one of the, the early Christian, the early members of the community, Con Brown, uh, later wrote about this experiment. He's not getting into the criticism part, but just describing a bit of, of what the community was founded on. He said, we were a group of people trying to live the spirit of the early church. The four commitments that people joining Koinia would make were one, hold Jesus in a special place in your life and heart. Two, accept all people as your brother or your sister. Three, to share everything equally according to need, not greed. And four, 
to value nonviolence as a way of life, not just a technique. All of us were conscientious objectors or more. We built all the houses ourselves as best we could, but we were dumb about house building at first. We had to schedule our showers in the beginning because at first there was only one bathroom. 18 of us shared that bathroom. We also decided that any adult member of the community had the right to discipline a child right away so that you did not have to wait for the child's parent. And so this was very much an experiment in this idea of trying to say, what would it look like if we all come together, live together, share everything together to see what would it be like to live life together as a Christian community? And that's what the word koinia uh, talks about is this idea of, of the fellowship. Uh, and so a Greek word throughout the New Testament. And so uh, that is in itself, I think, as radical of an idea as a, a lot of what they were doing on, on the issue of race, of accepting all people regardless of color. And I think in our capitalistic consumeristic culture, that is still an incredibly radical idea. Jordan liked to call koinonia a demonstration plot. It's a farming term. Uh, and it was this idea of, you know, you might test a little section to see if a crop's going to work here or not. And so that's what the, he saw koinonia as a, as a demonstration plot. Could you even live this way? Would it work? Could you take these concepts that they were reading in the Bible and live them out and have it actually work? Uh, and the community is still alive today. I think in many ways we could say it, it worked as a demonstration plot. Um, I do wonder about Shane Claiborne's joke. Uh, it seems like not many people have accepted a lot of the ideas. And so it's still, it's still mostly a, a demonstration plot and not uh, a, a model that we follow. A lot of people didn't like this idea. Uh, here's a, one of my favorite stories that was told about Jordan. A distinguished professor had come to visit him back, uh, a little bit later when, the, when the, he's getting to be a little bit more well-known. People would come to visit Koineo. They wanted to meet him. So this professor comes uh, and Clarence was working on a tractor at the time. And so the man is the first person he sees when he gets to the farm and he asks, he says, I would like to speak to Dr. Jordan. And Clarence wiped off uh, his greasy hand and extended it and said, I am he. And the man responded, no, I wish to speak to Dr. Clarence Jordan. Clarence insisted that he was the man, the, the one the man was looking for. Uh, the, the professor repeated his request, got irritated, got in his car and left. And a few days later, they received a letter from the man expressing how upset he was with the, the help that Dr. Jordan had managed to keep around him. See, this guy could not imagine that the Dr. Clarence Jordan that he had come to see with his PhD in New Testament Greek would be in his blue jean overalls, all covered in oil, fixing a tractor. That, that would surely be somebody else. And so one of the nicknames you'll see about Clarence uh, was that people called him the prophet in blue jeans which I, I like that idea. It almost sounds a little bit like uh, John the Baptizer, right? you know, out there with his crazy clothes and eating his, his crazy food. And so uh, out there in his, his, his blue jeans, uh, which is not, not the normal attire that we, we, we would expect our, our preachers to show up for. But Jordan was very much about trying to help us to acknowledge these inconsistencies in our values. Again, it's not just, not just about storing up, but also about what do we even value uh, in our own lives and our own churches. And so he has a translation note in the beginning of uh, the Cotton Patch Gospel, the, the Matthew one. These were originally published, I don't think I mentioned this before, uh, as kind of smaller collections. So like um, Luke and Acts were together, Paul's epistles were together, Hebrews and the other general epistles were together, uh, Matthew and John came out together after he died. As I mentioned last week, he didn't finish John, it's only about third done. Um, and then eventually they were all put together in one volume. But so each of these had a different translation note to kind of explain a little bit both about these specific passages as well as some of what he's doing. So here's what he explains in uh, translation note as he's explaining why he went for Jesus being lynched instead of crucified. Part of that is a timing issue, right? We don't crucify people today. Uh, he, he explains a little bit about lynching and, and how that worked in the South uh, and why that kind of fit as an apt uh, metaphor. And it definitely makes a couple of passages interesting. There's a couple of passages where the, the technical word, the technical, uh, the, the scripture doesn't actually say crucified. They talk about uh, hanging from a tree. 
as as a euphemism for crucifixion, but also works even more apt as a euphemism for lynching. Uh, I'm not sure lynching works as well today as the metaphor because we're getting a little bit further away from that time period. Um, but this is what, there's a second reason. That's, that's the first reason why he's changed from crucifixion to lynching. It was more historically accurate, particularly when he's dealing with issues of race. And then here's his second explanation. So there's, there's also just isn't any word in our vocabulary which adequately translates the Greek word for crucifixion. And then he, he italicizes our. Our crosses are so shined, so polished, so respectable that to be impaled on one of them would seem to be a blessed experience. We have thus emptied the term crucifixion of its original content of terrific emotion, of violence, of indignity, and stigma of defeat. Right? Jesus isn't hanging on this beautiful golden cross. It's, 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 not, even, it's not even nice lumber. It's definitely not been stained and have a nice protective glossy cloak coat on the outside of it, right? It's, it's rough. It's just thrown together, right? And so he's kind of mocking in his humor a little bit this idea that we have made crosses out to seem so beautiful. That it no longer seems so grotesque and, and so scary. The story about... Clarence one day when he was meeting with a pastor who gives him a tour of his nice church uh, and it, they're, they're going through and looking at the, the beauty of the building and they end up in the sanctuary and the pastor tells him, you know, points out it's brand new. They've just finished building a brand new sanctuary and says, you know, points out the, the beautiful, magnificent gold cross and says to him, that cross cost us $10,000. And Jordan replied, hmm, time was when a Christian could get one of them for nothing. So there is an interesting idea of going from being the people who were crucified because we've refused to give in to the values of the dominant culture to being the ones that have just turned the cross into a symbol of our dominant culture's ethics I think that not just in the, the fancy crosses that we build, but also in watching people carrying crosses as a violent mob went into the Capitol. Right? I mean, somehow this symbol of the oppression uh, of, of death is being turned completely different. To carry a cross like a crusader to go kill people in the Holy Land seems to miss the whole point of the symbolism of the cross as Jesus is dying on it. It is a weird thing that we even adopted the cross, the symbol of death. Uh, I said that lynching probably would not be the correct metaphor today. It, it might be something more like a uh, lethal injection table. Um, and uh, our federal government did that three times this past week. Uh, we killed a woman and then uh, a black man who was intellectually disabled and then a black man who hadn't even killed anybody on Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday on Friday. Uh, and, and I don't know if you've ever paid attention to the lethal injection table, but they literally strapped them down. Put it back up here. Literally, you strap you down with your arms out. It looks a lot like someone lying on a white padded cross. Uh, a few years ago, there was a black Baptist pastor in Arkansas who, on Good Friday, was leading a protest against the death penalty there outside the governor's mansion. Uh, a white Baptist as governor, and they reenacted Good Friday, only instead of having Jesus be crucified, the preacher was strapped down on a bed to look like lethal injection, and that was the climax of the passion play that they did outside the governor's mansion. So we have Pilate is now killing Jesus on a lethal injection table outside the governor's mansion. And so I think that that might be an apt metaphor if we were to imagine that story being retold today. Uh, and it would be weird for us then to start wearing lethal injection beds around our necks, right? And putting them up in our churches. And yet we have, we have done this, is this, this paradoxical taking this, this instrument of death and saying death could not defeat our God. 
Uh, and so that's what's happening. But I think sometimes we've missed the fact that this is an instrument of death and that there is beauty in this paradox, this fact that what was supposed to kill him actually becomes the metaphor for the fact that he could not be defeated. And yet it does seem that we have too often uh, missed the whole point, the whole message of that symbol. I, part of me wonders if Jordan started getting turned off on the symbol of the cross outside churches uh, because he saw them burning outside Koinonia. So we mentioned a couple of weeks ago when they were being shot at by semi-automatic weapons from the National Guard uh, off duty when they were having their uh, fruit and nut sign uh, stand being blown up by dynamite. They also had a couple of times when crosses were being burned outside their land, uh, including on Easter weekend, which is a, a really bizarre way to celebrate that symbol of let's go burn it to show our racial hatred towards somebody on Easter weekend. Uh, and so I wonder if that had, was a point when he realized that we have completely lost the point of this symbol, that we have, we have lost the message that's supposed to be embedded in this and maybe we need to have a different symbol I think there's other examples that show that perhaps we've lost the message, we've lost the symbol here. Rob Bell, on the back of one of his uh, earlier books, Jesus Wants to Save Christians, that's the name of the book, uh, the, the, has this little note on the back that doesn't actually come up in the book very much. It's a real, I think actually the most profound thing in that book is the, is the little note that he has uh, on the back cover about why he wrote the book. He said, there was a church not far from us that recently added a $25 million addition to their building. Our local newspaper ran a front page story not too long ago about a study revealing that one in five people in our city lives in poverty. This is a book about those two numbers. Jesus Wants to Save Christians is a book about faith and fear, wealth and war, poverty, power, safety, terror, Bibles, bombs, and homeland insecurity. And then inside he talks about the paradox of the people of Israel being freed from slavery. And then they finally get their land and they go to build a temple to God. And Solomon uses enslaved people to build the temple to God. How do we miss that? Like, how do, how do you tell a story about let's build a temple to the God who freed us from slavery by forcing enslaved people to build this building out of massive amounts of, of gold and other uh, fine uh, metals and, and jewels and so forth. Uh, or, or, you know, consider the Crystal Cathedral, which went bankrupt a decade ago, uh, $43 million in debt, but it cost $18 million to build this thing in $1980, which would be about twice that today. As I was going through my notes for this, so when, when Hannah asked me to, to lead this, you know, I, I made a comment that I had taught this class before uh, both times when we lived out in Virginia, and I, I hadn't used the notes since then. So as I'm reading through my notes for today, these are, would have been notes that I would have prepared probably about eight years ago. And I'm going to note that because the key figure that I have in this next example is someone by the name of Paula White. Uh, who over the last four years has been the spiritual leader for Donald Trump. And I'm just going to read what I wrote about eight or nine years ago uh, about her. And like I said, I kind of started laughing this week when I was reading uh, this because I had forgotten that I even had her as an example for this particular passage. Florida megachurch co-pastors, Randy and Paula White, before diver divorcing and continuing anyways with their preaching, had a home worth more than $2 million dollars a condo in Trump Tower worth about 3.5 million, a private jet that cost nearly 2 million, and very expensive cars. Even though the church took in nearly $40 million the year before the divorce announcement, the church was $22 million in debt, and they both had plastic surgery. Uh, so I'll just leave that there as a symbol of uh, perhaps the danger that I see right now. Uh, for American evangelical Christianity, that for the last four years, this has been the leader of uh, the most prominent uh, group of evangelicals in our country. Uh, this is, and, and let's be very clear, as Russell Moore of Southern Baptist Convention has said on multiple occasions, that she is not an evangelical, even though she's generally identified that because she leads the Evangelical Advisory Council for the president. This is prosperity gospel. 
Right? And, and there was a time when we would declare in our churches that the prosperity gospel was a false gospel. It is heresy. And, and frankly, if you preach the prosperity gospel, you're going to have to rip out of your Bible this whole chapter, Matthew chapter 6, as well as a whole lot of others. Don't get me wrong. But since we're in Matthew 6, you're going to have to go ahead and tear this one out. This idea that uh, God it, it will, will bless you and reward you with money and health and wealth if all you will do is serve him, right? It's this idea that you would send in your seed money to the preacher, and then God's going to return it back to you five, 10, 30, 50 fold. I forget sometimes it depends on the preacher how much you're supposed to get back from your investment that you send to them while they live in wealth. And the whole reason why the prosperity gospel exists is that these preachers, perhaps we should put that in quote marks, uh, need an excuse to justify how they can live with so much wealth. Right? Is it has to be a sign of blessing. The fact that you have multi-million dollar homes and all of this other type of wealth can only mean two things. Either God has blessed you or you are really outside of God's will. There's only, there's only two answers to someone having that much money. And so if you don't want to repent and sell all you have and give it to the poor, then you have to come up with a new gospel that says, actually, this just proves that God loves me and God is blessing me. You know, this from the God who uh, had no place to lay his head. That's what Jesus said about himself. Um, and so, you know, even more so than the beautiful crosses that we hang in our church, we have the, the preachers who live this out in a whole other way. Now, here's another example. Um, I, I say this is my, my favorite prosperity gospel preacher, but it's only because of his name. It's not that I actually like him. Creflo Dollar. I mean, isn't that, he was like born to be a prosperity preacher. Creflo Dollar defended his money ministry. Uh, we don't have any problems with movie stars having more than one home. We don't have any problems with sports people having one more, more than one home, home. But boy, if you've got a man of God that has more than one home, then there's got to be something wrong. Which is fascinating. I, I guess, you know, if, if the world can do it, then why can't we is, is the new moral ethic, uh, as opposed to recognizing that we have been called to live a different way. Uh, we have been called not to give into the values of our culture. Uh, it reminds me of what Walter Brueggemann said, and I think this fits with what I made a comment a moment ago about the temple being built by enslaved people. Uh, Walter Brueggemann and, and, and others have, have made similar comments. Uh, Old Testament scholar said that it is easy to get the people of Israel out of Egypt. It was harder to get the Egypt out of the people of Israel. And so we've seen this repeated throughout history. You know, we're, we're at a time point where we're remembering that 400 years ago, the pilgrims uh, came to America. Uh, we had a lot of these early people that came to this land, fled religious persecution, and then immediately turned around and persecuted anybody that they didn't like, including the first Baptist, Roger Williams, first Baptist <laughs> in the United States, was persecuted in Massachusetts Bay Colony by the very people who had fled religious persecution in England. It is idea of, we repeat, it's harder to get out of our system uh, the, the, the values of the dominant culture, even when we don't like those values, we turn around and enact them again ourselves. And so I think that that does raise some really important questions for us today of how do we find a way to live out this faith that Jesus taught us in a way that doesn't just look like the American dream. Is this just a sanctified version of what non-Christians in our culture and country want to have? Is this just get all of your money, but now also say a prayer too? That doesn't, that doesn't seem to be what Jesus has called us to. Uh, and it's a tougher message than I think we any of us, including myself, want to actually admit is there. Uh, that's why I think the Shane Claiborne line is correct, is that we want, to, we want to make excuses. We want to pretend like he was just joking. We want to try to explain away that, well, this is what Jesus was really meaning 
here uh, because we don't want to take these words seriously because we would have to change our lives too much. I'm reminded of the time when Peter is asked to heal someone and says that he has no gold and silver but could heal the beggar. And I wonder if instead we have plenty of gold and silver while the beggars are still suffering in the shadows of our large steeples. Uh, we're Martin Luther King Jr. weekend and Friday was his actual birthday today. Uh, tomorrow, I know many of you will have a holiday. Uh, King also makes this acknowledgement. He, he, he points out the irony of watching injustices in the land while he's driving past these really beautiful church buildings. He wrote in his letter from Birmingham jail. So he's sitting there in jail uh, and writing a letter to white preachers who had criticized him for uh, preaching against racial injustice. They said that we needed unity and reconciliation at a time like this. And here he was uh, trying to call for justice and accountability uh, and saying that we must reform and have justice before we have unity. And he, he talked about the how easy it must be for those who are more cautious than create courageous to remain silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. And then a little bit later, he writes in the letter, on sweltering summer days and crisp autumn mornings, I have looked at the South's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointing heavenward. I have beheld the impressive outlines of her massive religious education buildings. Over and over, I have found myself asking, what kind of people worship here? Who is their God? Where were their voices when the lips of Governor Barnett dripped with words of interposition and nullification? Where were they when Governor Wallace gave a clarion call for defiance and hatred? Where were their voices of support when bruised and weary Negro men and women decided to rise from the dark dungeons of complacency to the bright hills of creative protest? And I think it was an interesting and convicting metaphor that he's using, that he's comparing uh, silence and acceptance of an unjust status quo with beautiful church buildings. And that perhaps the more beautiful our buildings are, the easier it is to remain silent when things are going wrong. Um, I think about that with the incident that happened the day before Thanksgiving in Callaway County, just across the river at Mount Vernon Missionary Baptist Church, the Black Baptist Church that our church uh, helped give some funds to for the rebuilding, the, the vandalism that occurred to that building. Uh, a small, struggling, decrepit building already, uh, and it was the target of the vandalism, a, a place that has been targeted time and time and time again for decades, uh, and it's definitely a racial component. I visited with the pastor a couple times on the phone, actually talked to him first on Thanksgiving um, after the incident happened, met with him at the church and we toured it together and to see uh, the faithfulness occurring in this little small building on a gravel road that frankly, I didn't even know existed. And it's just a few miles away. You can get there in you know seven minutes from First Baptist Jeff City. Uh, it's a little gravel road north of the golf course uh, across the river. And there's something I think that as we're heading into this 21st century, and I know this is a conversation that our church has had, is that we're moving outside of the model, the 80s and 90s, really, really starting the 50s. This idea of building big buildings and, and ministry and church happens in the building and recognizing that buildings can be used for something other than Sunday worship and Sunday Sunday school. Uh, and that perhaps that there's more that we can be doing in the community outside the walls. This is part of what we've been doing uh, every April, except for obviously last year, we weren't able to, to get together and do that as we go and do work projects across the city. I think that there are ways of rediscovering what does it mean to be a church and that it doesn't necessarily define the building. In fact, many of us have not stepped foot in a building for 10 months and we are still doing church together as a community. And so I think that there is something to be said about uh, not putting value in these things that worm and rust will destroy. One last passage I'm going to read related to all of this, and then we'll have a few minutes for questions or comments. This is in Luke chapter 20, 
uh, end of 20, beginning of 21 from the Cotton Patch version. Again, just thinking about this idea of what does it look like? What are we valuing? Uh, I think you'll remember as a, as a it's, it's the, the widow's might uh, story. So I think you'll recognize the story in a little bit different language. While the whole crowd was listening, he said to his students, keep away from those religious leaders who insist on wearing academic robes and who love the back slapping at the civic clubs and the center chairs and the pulpits and the speakers tables at banquets who eat widows out of house and home and make long prayers at the drop of a hat. We'll get the judgment book thrown at them. He looked around and saw the rich folks putting their money into the collection plates. He noticed that a penniless widow put in two cents and he said, it is surely true that this poverty stricken widow put in more than the others because she, of all of them gave from their overflow while she from her scarcity has put in all she has. Some people were commenting about the first church instead of the temple, it's the first church. It's architecture, it's beautiful marble and the stained glass memorial windows. He said, all that you are admiring, the time will come when not one piece of marble will be left upon another without being torn down. We know that rust and moth or others will destroy. And so what we're called to do is to put our value, put our hearts on that which actually matters, that which actually lasts. We have about nine minutes if uh, anybody wants to jump in. Well, Brian, no, go ahead, please. I, I think it, it's interesting the, the the whole concept of you know it's much easier to get out of Egypt than it is to get Egypt out of you, and I've used that in different contexts. Uh, the reverse of that, and again, sorry, I've got to drop Dallas Willard's name is something he said, which is God is much less interested in getting people into heaven than he is getting heaven into people. And I, that just kind of came to mind as, as you said that. Yeah, I mean, that's right. And, you know, it's, it's one of the things that I think last week I talked a little bit about, um, you know, if Jesus was just coming here to save us, to get us to heaven, right? The moment we make that decision, he could go ahead and pull us on up. Um, and clearly we have more to live out here. And I think also it could be said about Jesus. If, if the whole point of Jesus coming was just to die and save us, he could have accomplished that in an afternoon. Right? Uh, instead, he's working hard for people not to know who he is. The first, you know, like two years of his ministry, he keeps telling people, don't tell anybody what you just saw. Uh, he says a couple of times, my time has not come. He knows he has stuff to teach us, like this passage that we just read. So it is, it is more than, he didn't, he didn't just come to die. He came to teach us how to live. And I think that that's really important. I like this subtle difference of y'all. Because um, we can just look like, this is just for me. This is just for Teresa or for the, this is just for my chosen friends, or this is for First Baptist JC. And, um, and I worked in Eastern Christian County where they used Ewans mm -hmm. instead of y'all. So um, yeah, I like that. I like that reminder. I hope that sticks with me that it, it is all of us in, in certain passages. He's talking to everybody. Yeah, that's right. And if y'all want to check out that, by the way, um, make sure the website's still correct. It's yallversion.com. All one word. Uh, don't put the apostrophe in there. Uh, I'm going to double, double check the website here. Uh, yallversion.com. Yeah, it still pulls up. And um, you, can, you can look at passages. You can type in a passage and you can compare. You can use different translations. It'll, each one, though, it'll always put in green whenever it's added the y'all. And it used to be, let me see here if it's still possible. It used to be you could even, um, 
I'd have to look around. It used to be that you could change the y'all if you wanted, because there are some regional ones like Yints and, and others. There used to be an option to do that as well. That might may or may not be possible. But anyways, if you ever want to look at a passage and kind of, you can do that as y'all uh, version.com. And it's a way of just, you can search for any passage. And if it's a plural you, it'll show up in green now as y'all. I think that particularly for, for those of us who live in an individualistic society, which the Middle East, when, G, when Jesus is there, is very much a collective. It's like uh, Eastern Chinese culture today, where it is much more about the, the community is more important. Saving face is really important. You know, all these things that we kind of maybe hear sometimes about Oriental cultures today. That's the culture that's much more like what Jesus is preaching to. It's not an individualistic culture. That we're in and i think that, that really does distort the way that we read the scripture too often you know, you know it doesn't really matter whether or not you have money or not it's what you do with that money and following jesus teachings his precepts going ahead and doing with that money what you can to assist people, to help people. People that have money and just hoard it and don't do anything worthwhile with it other than to go ahead and help themselves and be happy and lavish in it, that is not following anything that Jesus taught. But if people have money and go ahead and use it to help people and assist people, there's not a thing wrong with that. There are people that do have money and they do a lot of good with it. I know some of them. So there's not anything wrong with persons having money. That's not a problem. Money's not the issue. It's what a person does with that money and does with their life. Then there's something I wrote on Facebook. I've written it several times something people need to keep in mind it has to do with what you just said just a little while ago Brian those of us who are white should go ahead and accept something as fact as a reality we've been raised in a society that is surrounded by white privilege and to a degree whatever that degree is we have a degree of racism in us. What we need to do is go to a location, be involved with our black brothers and sisters. Get with them, go ahead and be quiet, sit with them and listen to them and hear what they have to say and learn things from their perspective. Hear things from their perspective. And finally, when we do, we will begin to understand things a little more clearly from where they're coming from. It'll make a lot of difference. It has for me, and it is still making a great deal of difference for me because I'm finally beginning to pick up on some things that I haven't known very well. And if you don't agree with what I just said earlier, just moments ago, about maybe you don't have, if you feel like you don't have any racism in you, a little bit of it at least, then uh, don't believe that, but get with your black brothers and sisters and sit and just listen to hear what they have to say from their perspective. And you may learn that there are some things you just don't really, you haven't understood in the past, like being pulled over and being concerned about when you're driving, you're gonna get pulled over sometime very soon by the police. They're out to get you. Many of them feel that way and they have a reason to, but you have to hear it from them and understand it from them. That's my comment. I think it is really important that we listen to different perspectives. And I will, I will just augment maybe slightly what you said there at the beginning uh, in, in, in a way to maybe challenge us all, myself included. Um, you made a comment that it was, wasn't wrong to have money is how you use it. Uh, and I think it might be a little bit closer to what Jordan is challenging us to read in the scripture is it's not wrong to make money. It's how you use it. Uh, and I would 
that changes a little bit of the sense because having is a bit more the still keeping. Um, you know, if we think about the parable of the, uh, not the parable, but the, the, the challenge of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and walks away sad because he has too much money, he doesn't want to get rid of it. Uh, it's easy for us to read that and think of somebody richer. But globally, we're rich. So the average adult in the world makes less than $18,000 a year. So we are, we are either the rich young ruler or we are Zacchaeus. And the question is, will we walk away sad or will we give what we have to the poor? And Jesus will say, today salvation has come to this house. Because that's what he says to Zacchaeus. That's what he says to Zacchaeus, not when Zacchaeus says, I trust in you as my Lord and Savior. He says that when Zacchaeus says, I repent and I give away my money. Then Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. So we should close there. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the, the conversation that Jesus has with the, in your Bible, the Samaritan at the well. Obviously, as you know from the first week, we will not have a Samaritan in our story next week. But uh, that is in John chapter 4. And so we will be looking, unpacking that story next week. If you want to take a, a refresher look at it this week, that's where we'll be next week. All right. Thank you, Brian. And um, glad to see everybody. Hope to see you next week. All right. See you, everyone. Thanks. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Yes, Thanks, thank Brian. you. Bye. You're going to be the last one to leave, too, aren't you? I don't know how to get out of here. Um, if you move your mouse cursor down to the bottom right corner, a button will show up that says, a big red button says end. No, I, I got a big blue one. Does it say end? Uh, no. I, that took me out. No, you're still in. Actually, I'm going to end the meeting and that'll disconnect you anyway, but I've got to stop the recording first. <laughs>